Welcome to the First Responder Leadership Podcast, the show where we talk about mental health and wellness in the first responder community. Thanks for joining us today. Welcome, Keith Notek, to the First Responder Leadership Podcast. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Conrad. It's great to be here with you. So, Keith, tell me a little bit about your story. You're, you're, right now, you're in Arizona. You're retired, yes. uh, but you were in law enforcement for many years. Tell me a little bit about that. Yes. I guess you could say that uh, I am uh, I'm recovering from living in California. I'm recovering after a 30-year career in law enforcement, and I'm a recovering alcoholic. Hmm. Um, but, um, you know, like, like many uh, young people, uh, as a kid, um, you know, it was a different uh, climate back in the, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And, and when I was a kid growing up, I looked up to, to law enforcement officers. Uh, uh, you know, in my mind, uh, they were real-life heroes. And, um, you know, I used to watch episodes of Adam-12 as, as a youngster, and watch Jim and Pete, you know, uh, always get, you know, they always chase the bad guy down and, and, and they always get the bad guy and they're in pursuits and, you know, all of this stuff. I thought, wow, that looks like a lot of fun. I think I'd like to do that as I get older. <laughs> so uh, I think I was 15 or 16 years old when I joined the police explorer program in the city that I lived in, uh, in Huntington Beach, located in Southern California. And I started doing ride-alongs and, you know, was in, involved in some uh, pretty interesting stuff on, on ride-alongs. And for a, you know, for a 16-year-old kid, um, it was pretty exciting. So, yeah, sure. yeah, I guess you could say that, that even back then, I was kind of an adrenaline junkie. Hmm. Uh, so I, I decided, you know, er, now my dad was a Lutheran pastor. So I grew up in, in a Christian home with Christian parents and I grew up in the church. And I, I thought when I was a little kid, a little guy, you know, eight, nine, 10 years old that I wanted to follow in my dad's footsteps and, and become a pastor. But, uh, you know, I got the law enforcement book. So the, the explore program is what really, um, uh, solidified my decision to go into law enforcement. So I, I applied for a position, a paid position as a police cadet with the city of Huntington Beach. I was subsequently hired and I did, uh, you know, assignments at the front desk, working in the city jail, working in the, the traffic bureau where I, I drove around and I went to, you know, traffic collision calls and directed traffic, took accident reports, issued, uh, parking citations and, and towed illegally parked vehicles, that, that sort of thing. And then um, when I was uh, just shy of my 21st birthday, they hired me as a recruit. And I went into the police academy, graduated, and, uh, and got sworn in as a, as a peace officer. And that was in, uh, I graduated in 1986 from the academy in May and then hit the streets and uh, worked for several different agencies. Uh, you know, uh, I've been everything from a, you know, I worked for several sheriff's departments in the state of California and, and several municipalities in California. So I was everything from a, 
a police officer and a deputy sheriff to uh, a two-striper, a sergeant, uh, a commander, an acting chief. Uh, I worked I worked a lot of uh, different assignments. I was blessed in that I was able to work, um, you know, a variety of different things. You know, it seemed like every few years I would get bored with an assignment and, and I'd want to change. And I was fortunate enough to, you know, put in for a different assignment and someone saw fit to transfer me. And so, um, you know, that was, that was a blessing, but, uh, by far my favorite thing to do is patrol. Uh, I liked being out there where the, the where the meat met the metal, so to speak, mm-hmm. uh, where the rubber meets the road. Uh, patrol really is the backbone of any law enforcement agency. And, uh, you know, uh, patrol officers and deputies are the first responders. You know, sure. Um, sure. I, I was a detective sergeant for a while and, you know, we were called out after the fact. We weren't the first responders. Right. You know, we'd get called out when when there was a you know a body, you know, mm-hmm. a homicide or uh, armed robbery, you know, bank robbery after the fact. So I like being out there in the mix. And even as a supervisor, I really enjoyed being out there with my guys and gals. Um, I guess you could say I was a hands-on supervisor. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was in your early experience as you, you know got your start and kind of rising through the ranks, what was a, or someone who really inspired you as a leader in law enforcement is, and what did they do to inspire you to move up and move forward? Um, That's actually a good question, Conrad. And it's uh, my answer is an easy one. It's a man named uh, James B. Hume, who he went by J.B. Hume. And uh, he was a, almost exactly eight years older than me. His birthday was two days apart from mine, but he was eight years older. And uh, he was the coordinator for the police explorer program in Huntington Beach. And, uh, uh, you know, the the officers at Huntington Beach PD in the early 80s, they called us JB's kids because JB ran the the explorer program. Um, He did it well. He, He truly cared for us. A lot of the, the kids that were under his uh, tutelage or mentorship grew up and went on into careers in law enforcement. And he, he was a great guy. He became a personal friend. And sadly, he passed away three years ago from colon cancer at the age of uh, 60. Mm-hmm. What was it about his leadership that really inspired you? He was a no-nonsense kind of guy. I mean, I got really a first-hand look at law enforcement in, in all of my, my dealings with him as, as a police explorer and then into my, into my career. He didn't sugarcoat everything. You know, uh, the, the perception I had of law enforcement was the Hollywood one that we all see on TV. And when I got out there in the field and, uh, you know, spent some time with him, I was introduced basically into the world of law enforcement, the real world of law enforcement, but also um, the real world. You know, I was kind of a sheltered, naive kid. So it was a big eye opener. He had a very uh, caring way about him. So he was, he was just a, a great guy. 
And mean, Hollywood, you know, Hollywood shows that they solve crimes in, in 60 minutes. They don't do that there in, in real police work. <laughs> <laughs> no, they do not, <laughs> Yeah, so uh, what what began to happen with you as you went through your, your time in law enforcement? What, I mean, I mean sure, you, you've experienced all kinds of different scenarios. What are some of those events that started weighing on you? Uh, as you went through your career? You know, I had a rewarding career, but I also had a tumultuous career. Um, the first time I was actually shot at was on duty was in 1988. Um, and it was at the end of a traffic stop. I let the violator go and there was another officer parked behind me. And, and we were on the sidewalk next to our patrol cars talking to each other and a vehicle in retrospect, it was probably a vehicle that drove by and fired a couple rounds off at us. Um, you know, nobody was injured. Nobody was hit. It was kind of a nothing deal. In fact, I, I went on vacation with my wife the next day uh, after that incident. Um, and it was a scheduled vacation and she's like, Oh, Hey, how was work? I'm like, Oh, you know, pretty good. Oh, I got shot at. She's like, what? What? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, but I I went on to experience major traffic collisions, uh, mangled bodies for, for lack of better terms, Mm -hmm. homicides, um, abused kids, uh, dead kids, um, you know, and, and those things began to weigh on me, but there was an organizational culture. And I believe there still is today to some extent that, you know, it's that suck it up buttercup mentality that was drilled into me, uh, in the police Academy. It's like your, your priorities are handling your calls. You take care of your beat. You go to your assignments, you clear that call and you move on to the next one. So it was like, you know, I could, I could be at a, you know, a brawl or, or even a major homicide scene. And then, uh, you know, after my part is finished at that call, I move on to the next thing, which may be a, a civil dispute or, or even a parking violation or something dumb like that, you know? And people don't know what I just, what I just came from. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, uh, I began to take that home with me. And, um, in 1997, I was, uh, involved in a shooting in Northern California when I was a, a sergeant with the Butte County Sheriff's Department. Uh, uh, I'll give you the reader's digest version. It was a domestic violence call. Uh, uh, another deputy and I went to the house where the, where we were dispatched to the people we were looking for weren't there. It was a husband and wife. Um, they were, they fled the house and they were out in the neighborhood somewhere. So, uh, one of my deputies, Randy Jennings, uh, was in the area looking for these two people, male and female. And he located the, uh, the male half of this dispute in a church parking lot. And I, I had just got in my patrol car, um, and I was going to go search for them as well. So he put out his location over the radio. I was like two blocks away. I started heading towards him. 
And then uh, when, as I was pulling into the church parking lot where Randy already positioned his vehicle, um, the, the suspect uh, began to flee on foot. He was, you know, booking it through this field that was located behind the church. Well, it's, it's 10 p.m. now. It's dark outside. Um, the only illumination in the area were our spotlights and, and high beams on our patrol vehicles that were um, position, you know, in a stationary position, shining on this one area where we first saw the guy. Well, now the guy is running into the darkness, and we, we're running behind him. And there's there's an olive tree, uh, ironically, an olive tree, you know, the symbol of peace, uh, in the middle of this field. And he ran behind the olive tree, took cover, and it was really hard to see. I, you know, I was losing sight of him, and all I could see was ran the back of Randy running in front of me. And then all of a sudden, uh, gunfire. Um, I see, I see the muzzle flash first in the darkness, and 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 then you know, uh, the speed of light is faster than the speed uh, speed of sound. And I hear. I hear the gunshots. I heard a round go past my head and I'm like, Whoa, this guy's shooting at us. And, um, Randy who was running in front of me went down. Hmm. Uh, Randy was apparently hit. So I was, you know, coordinating the emergency response to this, this shooting, uh, long story short, um, Randy was hit five times uh the fatal round penetrated just below the neckline and above the protective kevlar ballistic vest mm -hmm. that was the fatal round that that killed randy um uh, when when i got a couple more guys there we initiated cpr on, on him but uh the fatal round severed his aorta mm -hmm. um, the suspect was uh also deceased um, so that was my first real, uh, officer involved shooting. Um, and it was a traumatic one. Um, you know, that it weighed heavily on my, my heart. I lost a, a friend, um, and, a, and a subordinate. And I, I had just been promoted to Sergeant for, for the first time, uh, like seven months earlier. So I was still learning how to do my new job as, as a supervisor. But I took my my promotion in my my new position very seriously. You know, I I felt that it was a, a sacred trust to oversee a group of people and to get them the, the resources and things they needed to do their job. And I also felt personally responsible for their safety, you know, mm -hmm. kind of like being the the dad or the grandpa, you know, unofficial grandpa of a group. Even though I was a young guy, you know, back then in '97. Um, so, how did you so, handle that then? Just as uh, as an officer, as a leader, as a I had survivor's guilt. Honestly, three of us ran into the field, and, and I was the only one who came out uh, of it alive. Um, you know, I suffered some minor, very minor injuries from that whole thing, not from gunfire, uh, but from landing on a when when I went down to take cover, um, uh, or at least concealment, really, I landed on a down 
rusty barbed wire fence and mm. I got all cut up. And, um, but I, I was traumatized. Uh, after the, you know, we call them the headhunters after the post shooting, uh, investigators were, were done interviewing me. I went out to breakfast, uh, with my Lieutenant and then, um, got dropped off at the house because my, we had take home cars, um, at that time with that agency and my car was in the crime scene. It became part of the crime scene. So he dropped me off at home. And then, um, a couple of deputies, um, came over to my house with a bottle of booze. So we, we cried, we told Randy stories, we drank and I was physically and, and mentally, emotionally exhausted. And I thought, you know, I had been up for over 24 hours. It's like, you know, Hey Keith, it's time to get some sleep. So I, I, after the guys left my house, I went to bed. I started dozing off as soon as I started really dozing off. Um, I heard gunfire in my sleep. I mean, like it was real, like right there in the bedroom and it, and it woke me up. Um, you know, in 1997, the, the term post-traumatic stress wasn't really a thing. Mm -hmm. uh, I knew that I was, you know, having effects, you know, at the after effects of what just happened. Um, but I didn't know anything about post-traumatic stress or anything. I thought, well, you know, I'll just, I'll shake it off, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so I, I drank, but not to the extent that I did later on in my career. Um, what and did your agency do for you at that, at that time? Uh, nothing. Um, I mean, we had, we sat, we did have a critical incident debriefing that was, you know, members of the department got together in a big conference room and, and we talked about Randy and so on and so forth. Um, and then that was kind of it. And then, um, like a week and a half afterwards, they sent me to a um, contract department psychologist uh, down in Sacramento. And, um, you know, again, there's this organizational culture. Um, suck it up, Buttercup. You know, you signed up for this. Um, you know, and when you're with a bunch of type A personalities, a bunch of, you know, there were less women in law enforcement back then. And, uh, you know, just a bunch of macho guys, right? So when I went to the department psychologist to be cleared to go back to work, you know, I answered the questions. I was like, oh yeah, you know, it was, it was horrible. I lost my friend. Um, you know, it, it was sad. It was, it was traumatic, but I'm okay. You know, I'm ready to go back to work because that's what you do, right? If you fall off the horse, you get back up on it and, and ride it again. And, and that was my thought process at the time because I didn't want to be viewed as weak or uh, as a wimp, um, you know. So I, two weeks after the shooting, I went, I went right back to work. And, and ironically, um, the day that I went back to work, there was another critical incident. It wasn't an officer-involved shooting, but it was a suicidal guy with a shotgun in the front yard of his house. And as we were responding to the scene, uh, right before we got there, he, he took his own life. Mm. So 
uh, imagine that when the first call out the shoot and it's it's another call involving gunplay mm-hmm. um i began to experience more things like this i was involved in a couple more shootings one where i was uh pinned down by gunfire on an indian reservation um in riverside county um that one ended up in the uh the fatal shooting of um both suspects um but i experienced a lot of death a lot of trauma a lot of grief suicides you name it i just i got to the point in my career to where i never wanted to see another dead body as long as i lived um and about five years before my retirement see in california you have to be a minimum of 50 years old uh to draw on your pension you can't retire until you're 50. at at 45 years old i had 25 years on the job i was i was ready to to go you know Mm -hmm. live my my golden years plus i was still young enough it's like hey i can go do something else Mm -hmm. but i had to stick it out another five years Um, i didn't want to again there's this stigma uh, I probably could have pursued a stress retirement, a medical retirement for post-traumatic stress, but I chose not to do, uh, the, the industrial, uh, medical retirement. Um, because again, we, we're hard on each other as cops, you know, we bust each other's chops all the time. It's like, Oh yeah, that guy couldn't handle it. He's, you know, he's weak, you know, he broke under pressure and I didn't want to be that guy. So I just put on a facade. I'd go home, I'd self-medicate, uh, you know, and, and I, I'd sober up, I'd go to work. Um, and, and that was the cycle, especially during the last, you know, probably, well, the last five or six years on, on the job. And In um, all your years and all the different things that you experienced, was, were there any agencies who actually did something to help officers who were dealing with things that you were dealing with? Yes. Um, the Riverside County Sheriff's Department. Um, I spent my last 11 years with, with those folks. Mm-hmm. Um, Riverside County is uh, Sheriff's Department is the third. It's the second or the third. It, it goes back and forth. But the second or third largest uh, Sheriff's Department uh, in the state of California out of all it's kind of a suburb sort of LA is that yes yeah. yes it, it stretches uh, from the west at the Los Angeles and Orange County line all the way east to the Arizona state line okay wow so it's a large geographical area and then there's uh, like over 5,000 uh, employees on on the department and it's a busy department uh, you know there's there's nice areas in Riverside County, and then there's not so nice areas. Uh, and, you know, we have, I forget how many stations there, there are throughout the county, but, you know, there some of the stations, we call them ghetto stations. Because mm-hmm. they're in the ghetto, there's a lot of crime. So there are a lot of officer-involved shootings, a lot of critical incidents in the county, Riverside County Sheriff's Department. Um, began to take a proactive approach to critical incidents. And they would send, like, guys that were involved in shootings, they would send us to um, the mountains, the San Bernardino Mountains, on a retreat, basically, 
um, with a licensed psychologist who, who facilitates the healing retreat, basically. Mm -hmm. um, but unfortunately, I didn't take advantage of a lot of resources that were available to me because of the stigma, mm -hmm. because of the organizational culture. So what did yeah. you choose to do instead? How did you? <laughs> I drank. Hmm. I drank. Uh, you know, what's what's the easy thing to do, right? It's legal. It's easily accessible. You go to the store, you buy a bottle. Um, so that's, that's what I did. And as I was doing it, I realized that it's not a, a healthy coping mechanism, but I chose to do it anyway because... In my mind, I told myself, oh, you can quit at any time. Mm. Um, so so uh, probably about a year before I retired, I, I did what they call white knuckle sobriety. I just quit cold turkey. And, you know, I was thinking to myself, I don't want to be the retired guy that sits around at the house in retirement, drinking all day, wasting away, you know? Uh, so I, I didn't work any kind of a, a, a program of recovery or resilience program or anything like that. I didn't that. do any of that. I just quit cold Turkey and it worked for a while until it didn't, you know, life happens. Um, you know, um, in, in the book that I wrote, um, I talk about the different incidents that I, I was involved in that kind of pushed me to the brink of destruction. Um, so after retirement, there was a period where uh, I lost uh, like four close personal friends in a two year period. They, they wow. died, you know, um, my uh, father died in 2018 and six months after he passed away my father-in-law died at a young age unexpectedly mm -hmm. six months after my dad did so i had all of this death and then uh um you know uh, a friend of mine uh his wife was killed in the line of duty she was a police officer in california that one was gut-wrenching and it, it brought back all those those horrible, horrible memories of, of my past of, of dealing with this stuff. So I started drinking again. Hmm. It, it pushed me towards drinking. Mm -hmm. And the, the last straw for me was, um, uh, in April of 2019. So last year, uh, a friend of mine died. He was a mentor. Um, and, he died unexpectedly at a young age of a massive, he had a massive coronary event. So I, I, and this was the end of April. So I thought, well, if I go up to Northern Nevada and visit my daughters, it'll take my mind off of, you know, what just happened to Dan. Um, my wife's mother who resides in California was going through her own medical issues. So, my wife went to California to be with her mom to drive her to doctor's appointments and such. And I went up to Northern Nevada. Well, the, the problem with that was I was staying in a hotel room by myself, uh, in my dark mind. Um, and the Dan's death really depressed me. It really depressed me. So I began to self medicate with alcohol in the room to 
numb the pain. Well, when you're an alcoholic and you don't, you know, and you have other issues uh, such as post-traumatic stress and depression, you don't always make the best decisions. You know, we call it stinking thinking. Hmm. So I'm already under the influence of alcohol. So I drive to the store and I pick up a bottle for the trip home. Well, it's a 13 hour drive from where my daughters lived at the time to where I live now. And, uh, um, you know, I'm driving in the middle of the Nevada desert. Long story short, I rear end a vehicle. I sent two people to the hospital. Uh, they're injured. I'm injured. They're more seriously injured than I am. I'm, arrested for DUI. I spent four days in jail and, uh, that, that was it. That was, that was the point for me that I, I knew I had to do something. I had nowhere to go. I'm in a jail cell. I had nothing else to do, but to cry out to God. And that's, you know, growing up in the church, I, I knew God. Mm-hmm. But I didn't know God, if that makes sense to you. Mm-hmm. Finally, I cried out. I'm like, Lord, please help the people that I just hit. Um, please help me. I'm destroying my marriage. I'm destroying my whole life. Um, and, and I just prayed. I had days to 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 pray and really meditate on what I did and what my life had become. So when I got released and came home, um, I, I went to bed and this is a few, few nights after getting home. And to this day, I, I couldn't even tell you if it was, if, if it came to me in a dream or if, if I was actually consciously awake, but I was in bed and in my mind, I was, I was awakened by a presence or a being in my room hmm. and I couldn't even tell you what the shape was. I mean, it was, it was a being. That's all I can say. And I wasn't afraid. And the message I got was, um, you know, Keith, peace be with you. Um, it's going to be okay. I'm going to get you through this, you know, take my hand and I'll walk you through type of thing. So, and again, I don't know if, it, if I was dreaming or if I was consciously awake, but I had this overwhelming feeling of peace in, in the middle of, of chaos in my life. And when I woke up the next day in the morning, I became acutely aware of the presence of God. Um, mm-hmm. and, and it was like the, the Holy Spirit was talking to me that, that still small voice. I mean, it wasn't audible, but it was, it was in here and it was in my heart and all of my character defects, you know, all of these things that I need to change, I became aware of those. And I went to the computer and I started typing, you know, like five pages worth of stuff. This is what I need to change. And, um, you know, uh, several people encouraged me to, to journal, which I never did before. And this five pages worth of stuff, I, I thought, well, how did I get to this point and where did I come from? So I, I went back to day one 
and I just started journaling and it was very therapeutic for me. And it, I felt the Holy spirit was leading me to, to write a book to help other people. Now I, I don't like being the center of attention. I, I really don't. And I, I didn't want to be the poster child for post-traumatic stress and, you know, alcoholism and recovery, but it just kind of uh, morphed into that. It's like, Lord, whatever you want me to do, I'll, I'll do it. Um, so I wrote this book. It's a book of redemption, healing, where, where I was, you know, prior to, during, and after my law enforcement career talks about the post-traumatic stress, some of the critical incidents, uh, the alcohol, and, and what I began to do. Um, and basically for me, what I began to do is, um, uh, I got really interested in helping people who have gone through similar, um, experiences. So I, I, I began to educate myself on post-traumatic stress. Um, I belong to, uh, a volunteer organization that also has a chaplain program. And part of the chaplain program is um, a certification in um, critical incident stress management. Mm -hmm. So I went through that program, um, and it's it's essentially um, an Air Force program. It's based on the Air Force pillars of resilience. Um, so in my own personal life, I began to become more self-aware of myself um, and, and what I needed to do to, um, to live a happy and healthy life. And uh, I went to a therapist. I went through a, um, I guess you could call it a, a therapy, uh, if you will, called uh, EMDR. Mm -hmm. Have you heard of that? Yep, I'm familiar with it. Yep. Yeah, uh, and it's it's an acronym for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. So I, I went through that. That was very helpful and very healing for me. And and, uh, and I got into Alcoholics Anonymous. I started working a program of uh, recovery and and of personal resilience. Um, and then you know the four pillars of resilience are. Uh, mental, spiritual, physical, and social. And I realized that when I was living in, inside my dark mind and going through all of this, this stress um, and depression, it's, yeah, I had no, I had no spiritual life. Um, I had no physical, you know, I didn't pay attention to the physical component because I stopped going to the gym. Mm -hmm. I, I isolated um, so I didn't, you know, do anything about the social aspect either, because a lot of the relationships I had, I just, I pushed them aside. Um, you know, so the, as far as the spiritual aspect goes, that's huge for me. Um, I, I now have a relationship with God. I mean, every day I connect with God, I pray, I meditate. I have certain readings and, and meditations that I do in the morning. And, um, you know, I just have a feeling of, of, you know, spiritual progress and wellness. Um, I never had that before. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the spiritual component gives us 
purpose also. Um, and, uh, I know what my purpose is now. And that, that is, you know, to, to help others, to, um, give the message of, of healing. And, um, and that's what I'm trying to do now. Uh, you know, I, I'm back in the gym now, so I'm paying attention to the, the physical aspect. I have a close circle of friends that I network with and, um, you know, those are just a few of the things that, that I started doing on the road. How would, how would have your, how would your career have been different if these four pillars that you work on now would have been taught at the academy? Yeah, you know, and since you posed the question in that manner, um, I think that it probably would have helped. Um, you know, again, the organizational culture back then was, you know, handle your calls, move on, suck it up. And, uh, I know that, that academies now are implementing these mental wellness programs, um, into their curriculum, which I think is fantastic. Um, but I, you know, I don't know if it, if it would have in retrospect or if it wouldn't have helped, I just don't know. Um, it, it, it may have, but the only experience I have to go by is my own mm -hmm. and that, and that, that mentality back then, you know, mm -hmm. um, you know, don't be aware. What are some things you feel looking back that as a leader you did or could have done for your subordinates regarding these issues? You know, as a, as a supervisor, as a leader, um, you know, if I would have read, you know, there, there were actually several times when, when I told subordinates of mine who were going through some stuff uh, that they should seek help through the, the EOP program mm -hmm. um, uh, or EAP program, rather, employee assistance program, mm -hmm. where they had licensed psychologists and psychiatrists available to them and, and such. And, and I referred them out, but I didn't, I didn't practice what I preached because, um, because of the, the way I was programmed from the mid eighties. And do you, you think know? that's kind of typical for leadership in, in many departments? I think so. I think it's going by the wayside now as, as we mature and we progress and as the old, the old breed, you know, uh, quits, retires, or dies off, and, and they're replaced with, you know, younger uh, people who, who have different experiences. I think it's going by the wayside, but it was very prevalent in, in the 80s, 90s, and, and even in the, the 2000s. Mm -hmm. um, but that, that stigma is slowly beginning to change. You know, we hear a lot about combat vets, you know, coming back from the Middle East or whatever, and they have, they have post-traumatic stress and the VA, you know, they have all kinds of different programs. Well, uh, you know, on the public safety side or first responder side, you don't hear a lot about that. Hmm. Um, but there are more things uh, coming out. I know that they were trying to introduce some federal legislation a while back uh, with regard to uh, programs being made available for first responders with post-traumatic stress. And I know that the Fraternal Order of Police uh, sponsored that, um, you know, proposed legislation. Um, so it's it's coming, but it's, you know, 
it's definitely later than than sooner it's a slow process yeah and it's it's really too bad that it takes some of these you know traumatic events and even you know many many way too many suicides to inspire change in agencies i mean it's you know it's 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 long time coming it's and and we need to see it but it should have happened a long time ago absolutely probably saved a lot of lives over the years absolutely i mean i i have personally worked with with several uh officers and deputies who who you know checked out by way of uh, suicide Mm -hmm. and it's 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 so sad it doesn't have to be that way there is a solution there I've interviewed quite a few people with, that have dealt with these issues, uh, but, but I think you're one of the first ones that really your transformation really started with a spiritual component. First. Absolutely. And so talk a little bit about how that is viewed within law enforcement. You know, um, <laughs> growing up in a Christian home, I profess to be a Christian, but I'm embarrassed to say that, uh, you know, throughout my career, I wasn't always a good witness. You know, I had a foul mouth and some of the things I used to say and do uh, were, were a horrible witness to to what I believed. You know, I I believed in 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 Christ. I believed in the Holy Trinity. And that's as far as it went. I did not have that relationship component um, to my to my faith. Um, so for, for me, when I had that, that being reveal itself to me, when I had that experience, it's like, wow. Um, you know, there have been times when I, I mean, I've been shot at multiple times, you know, there've been times when, when I should be, you know, I should have been killed, but God saw fit to keep me around for, for some purpose. And, and now I see what that purpose is. I mean, I, when I was in the fifth grade, I was ran over by a pickup truck and there wasn't a, a scratch mark on me. So, you know, little miracles here and there, but yeah, I mean, uh, in the macho world of, of law enforcement, that type a, uh, mentality, um, you know, the, the majority, I would say the majority of personalities in law enforcement depend on self-sufficiency rather than spiritual sufficiency. Mm-hmm. And now that I, you know, have had that spiritual, spiritual transformation, um, I, I wouldn't want to go back to, to the old me. You know, I pray every day, Lord, keep, keep the old me, you know, kill that guy off. I don't want to be that guy anymore. I want to be a new creation in you. I have a lot of joy a lot of peace, a lot of serenity these days. Um, because, you know, when I was depending on myself to make decisions and, you know, it's, it's one thing to be a police officer and you have to make, you know, life changing decisions. Um, but when you're in supervision, you make decisions that affect your, your coworkers too. Mm -hmm. So I was used to being that guy, you know, making decisions and, and, uh, you know, eventually I found that, you know, my best, my best decisions, uh, caused me to self-medicate with alcohol and, and crash into the back of another car. Hmm. So now that I have a relationship with God, a daily spiritual connection with God, um, you know, I, I have, I have that peace. I have a lot of peace. I have, I have uh, purpose. 
I have direction because, you know, I live my life not for myself, but, but for my God, for my family, for my friends. Um, I've become a better man in, in all aspects of my life because of that spiritual component that I was lacking before. So what do you do on a daily basis to not only maintain your, your spiritual connection, but, but all the other parts of your life? What do you, what do you do to stay healthy and well? Uh, well, you know, I, I, I focus on, um, the mental, uh, part. Uh, I wasn't very self-aware before, you know, my, my thought process, you know, back in the day was, oh, you have bad feelings, you know, Go, go get the bottle, you know, reach for the bottle. Um, you know, you're having bad thoughts. Um, but, uh, that, that's another thing. Your thought life, um, tells a lot about who you are because it manifests itself in, in every aspect of, of your life. Um, I was depressed. I was stressed. I was living in dark places. I was hyper vigilant and I've learned through daily practice, just to be more self-aware of, of these feelings. Um, I find that if I start my day off with prayer, if I read, I read a thing called our daily bread every day, it's a Christian, uh, devotional. And then I, I read a couple of other things. If I do those things and stay connected to God every day, I'm going to have a pretty good day. You know, I finish out my day with prayer in, in the evening when I go to bed. Um, yeah, I go to the gym four days a week, you know, um, the, the physical aspect is also huge. Uh, the, you know, we all know, oh yeah, working out, it's good for you. We, we hear it all the time, but it's, it's really true. It sounds kind of cliche, but, um, it, it helps us to promote better sleep. And we all know that, that sleep is huge. Um, uh, sleep helps reduce stress. Um, it, sleep also proper sleep helps improve your memory. Uh, it improves your blood pressure and your overall emotional well-being. So, um, the, the physical aspect is very important, spiritual, mental, and social. I have, I have a small group of guys that I, uh, kind of hang out with, you know, we talk to each other on the phone uh, on a regular basis. And these are, you know, uh, mostly retired people from public safety, police and fire. Some of them are, you know, other alcoholics in recovery. Um, others aren't, um, you know, I go to AA meetings. Um, we recently started, um, uh, a fellowship at my church called sheepdog fellowship. And it's for, uh, combat vets and first responders. We just had our first meeting on this past Monday, in fact, and there were nine people there. Uh, it's kind of sketchy right now with the COVID thing and some of the social distancing restrictions, but you know, we had nine, we had nine people there and I, I really think it's going to grow. Um, because there's a need for that. There's a need for like-minded people, um, who, have gone through similar experiences, it's important for us to get together because, you know, those of us who didn't feel comfortable talking to our family and friends before about this stuff, you know, sometimes we, we get together with a close friend that's in the same line of work and, and we discuss it with them. Well, that's what we do in this, this Bible fellowship for first responders and, and combat vets. So, 
um, you know, things are happening. Good things are happening. The, the book that I wrote, From Sorrow to Amazing Grace, uh, it's currently uh, they're writing a screenplay. It's going to be turned into a movie. So That's I'm pretty, pretty exciting. It is. It is exciting. Where can people find the book? Oh, it's available on uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Uh, I think Walmart and Target sell it online. And there's other vendors out there that, that also sell the book. Okay, I'll be sure to link it in the in the notes in, in the show. So people oh, can go, go, right, go right to it. If there's someone out there, maybe a, a police officer, maybe another type of first responder who says, you know what, I think I need to make some changes. What should the, what should the first step be? The first step is obviously admitting to yourself that you need help. Um, and probably admitting to somebody else, you know, a loved one that you need help. Uh, that's the first step. And then seek that help, you know, whether it's uh, talking to a, a pastor, you know, a psychologist, a peer counselor at work, um, or, or somebody who's, you know, dialed in that, that can refer you to additional resources. But the first step is just making that, that admission to yourself and, and to somebody else. Um, and really sticking with it because it's really easy to reach for the bottle or, you know, um, go down the road of, of self-destruction. It's, it's easy to do. Um, so just sticking, staying on the path to resilience is, is the key. And, you know, I mentioned the four pillars of resilience before. Those are the things that, that, that people should start looking at. Um, you know, in my own case, it, it helped, it helped me. And I mentioned EMDR earlier. You know, it may not work for everybody else, but it, it worked for me. It, it really, really helped me um, on my road to uh, personal resilience and recovery. And what if someone sees uh, perhaps a coworker or someone else that they're working with that's perhaps uh, drinking too much or they're showing some other signs of post-traumatic stress? What can they do as a friend, as a coworker? Just be there for them. You know, talk to them, um, put your arm around them, let them know that you care about them. Um, you know, when I was going through this stuff, um, I knew there were other guys and gals who were going through similar circumstances, but I felt like I was all by myself, like I was suffering in silence. It almost felt like I was the only one going through it, even though in my logical mind, you know, I work with people that have gone through the same types of things that I did. So just, just be a friend, reach out, talk to them, you know, refer them to, to somebody, refer them to, to get help. Um, again, you know, you don't have to go down that road to self-destruction, you know, for, for me, you know, the, the road to Christ was paved with, uh, you know, a lot of trauma and whatnot, but, for, for me, the spiritual component, it, again, it's, it was huge for me. And once I had that peace that surpasses all, all human understanding um, through, through my God, you know, I was really able to become more self-aware and, and get my butt to the gym and reconnect with my, my good friends that I had, you know, put on a shelf for so long. Um, so yeah, the four pillars of resilience, look at that, you know, really concentrate on the spiritual side, uh, because when you depend on 
God as you understand him uh, and you don't depend on yourself. Um, again, my best thoughts, you know, got me into some pretty bad spots. Um, so when you depend on God and not your own human understanding, um, that's going to better equip you to make better decisions. And with that, we'll wrap it up. Keith, thank you so much for taking time to talk to me today on the First Responder Leadership Podcast. I really enjoyed our conversation and congratulations on the book and on your continued sobriety and recovery. And I wish you the very best moving forward. Thank you, Conrad. God bless you, my friend. The book is called From Sorrow to Amazing Grace. The author is Keith Notek, and he was our guest today on First Responder Leadership Podcast. Thank you, Keith. We'll talk to you, everyone again very soon. Have a great day. Thank you. You have been listening to the First Responder Leadership Podcast. Be sure to connect with us on our social media sites at PTSD911Movie on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. Today's show has been brought to you by PTSD 911, the documentary film that will raise awareness, smash the stigma of asking for help, and inspire change in agencies around the country. We are looking for people who want to help us tell this story. If you are passionate about the first responder community, please make a tax-deductible donation toward the production of our film. Visit PTSD911movie.com, click on the Support This Film button, and make a donation. We're so grateful for everyone who's joined with us to help us make this film a reality. We can't do it without your support. Thank you. And we would love to have your feedback on this show. So please smash the subscribe button and go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. That really means a lot and it helps more people discover the show. My name is Conrad Weaver and we'll see you next time on the First Responder Leadership Podcast.